you extract, uh, if you collect the hypericum uh, after flowering and you make a traditional extract like the liquid extracts we always used to use, there's no hypofluorin in it to speak of. And that's why we never had any drug interactions hypericum uh, before, hasn't done so before. And, if, and it's still true today. If you choose a liquid extract, especially one made in Australia, there's very little hypofluorin no, and, and virtually no risk of interaction at all. Right. You can, so, also, you can also, if you want to use a tablet, you have to ask the manufacturing, manufacturer, what is the level of hypofluorin? And, uh, and uh, sometimes they will know, sometimes they will want to tell you, sometimes maybe not, but you need to ask them. Uh, mm. And if you want to be absolutely sure, uh, then you need to have that uh, documented because then you can give it to any of your patients and there's no risk of drug interaction. Hello and welcome. Mentoring with Geraldine is a bite-sized practitioner podcast for naturopaths, nutritionists, herbalists, and practitioners. This podcast responds directly to your needs, the needs of the practicing natural therapist. With interviews, herbal discussions, something business, and something clinical each week, you'll get the variety you need and enjoy to stay motivated in practice. Hello, and welcome to Mentoring with Geraldine and the Bite Size Podcast. And I am so excited because I asked Michael Thompson to come back again and speak to us, and he's here. Yay! So you may remember the previous episode where we talked about carver, but today we did touch on on that um, conversation, Erythrococcus and Hypericum, but I thought it'd be better if we had two podcasts. And so we're going to talk about those two today. So Michael Thompson is a naturopath and herbalist. Um, and he's based in Hobart and he's been practicing for the last 35 years. And as I said last time, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see the book covers, but podcast people, you'll just have to imagine the book covers. And um, I will make sure that in the show notes, I've got how to get these, not this old one, but this is the new desk reference that's been created this year. So in the show notes, there'll be links to get those and to find your copy and to get to the digital copy so Michael thank you so much for coming back so lovely to have you thanks for asking me I want to show you something all the listeners I forgot to show you last time hang on where's my camera up here oh yeah your carver this is, bowl this is my carver bowl it's got ah. beautiful um turtles inside ah. it so I oh. assume I, yeah, I haven't been there so um but maybe you've seen them but I assume these are the ceremonial balls that they they pass around um yeah, but isn't Once, that lovely? I think they make them in those bowls and then make them in much bigger bowls and then they pass around small cups. Oh, this is for drinking, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so yes, yeah, for creating this, for making it. Uh, this, so this is, a, this is an old book, but it's, it's a really nice one because uh, it's from 1983. Yep. And it's been, there's another one called the British Herbal Compendium, which is more, more, more scientific. That's a yellow sort of cover. And, but this one here was actually based on a survey. So uh, they, in, in the early 80s, they must have gone around to all the herbalists, living, working herbalists in the UK, and asked them about a group, a, group, a list of herbs, what they used it for, and the dosage. And, uh, and, and this, this pharmacopoeia is a result of that survey. So that in itself is quite a nice, nice uh, kind of um, document because, because of it, it, is, it reflects the, the practice at that time. But also, we, it, it's got some things that are interesting and, and something to really uh, consider, for, especially for students and young practitioners is, is, you know, you can't trust everything you read um, mm. or hear. And now, of course, with social media and YouTube is even worse. But even, even uh, with a document like this, is interesting. And so, so I was just um, going to uh, read out the, uh, the indications for Hypericum. 
So the indication for hypericum, the indications are excitability, neuralgia, fibrocytis, sciatica, and topically for wounds. And the specific indication, that's something that, that they think is a really important indication for a particular herb. The specific indication is menopausal neurosis. Just for the, for the women out there, <laughs> which obviously is, is not a, um, a word we would use <laughs> anymore. No, we'd avoid that one preferably, yes. <laughs> I assume that a lot of the herbalists in that, at that time in the 80s were, were men possibly, yeah. yeah. before witches came back and took over. This would be a man, <laughs> male-dominated thing. But also males seem to produce stuff like books and, yeah. in those days as well. They were the authors, even though the women were probably quite well represented in the practice the, the men probably dominated the associations and the and the literature i'm not sure anyway yeah uh, so uh these are tiny little monographs and i've actually copied all, all the important stuff into the phytotherapy desk reference so you can see that that um on the indications there's a specific heading called bhp the british herbal pharmacopoeia and that's from mostly from this book uh, mm. because i think it's really nice to have that that information but i do leave out a few things that i don't agree with so my book is also my personal uh, take on things um, because the contraindication in the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia of 1983 for hypericum is depressive states. Oh, okay. And well, so it's interesting, isn't it? That's that, really interesting. I mean, that, I know uh, mm, we all use things for different things, don't we? I mean, I will always put St. John's in if somebody's got chronic fatigue more for the envelope virus aspect than for the depression of it. And, uh, you know, the changes and the learnings over the years. So mm. I have my copy of that as well, but my copy isn't in a cover because it went out of print. They never printed it again. So once it was 10 years out of print, you can photocopy it. So I have a so, photocopied version. <laughs> very good. You can share that maybe. Um, uh, yeah, so so uh, this brings up like, you know, did they not use it because it didn't work or they just hadn't thought of it or hadn't, you know, like, and what's the difference between this menopausal neurosis and, and depressive, depressive states, you know, why, why use it for anxiety? I guess neurosis is some kind of anxiety. I don't know what neurosis really is, you know, but uh, I guess it's anxiety. Uh, and it was when I studied herbal medicine, which was around this time, um, Hypericum was a nervine tonic. That was mm. the traditional term and, and still is. I still call it a nervine tonic because I think it broadens the indication. So yeah. students and young practitioners should not think of hypericum for being only for depression. Like you mentioned, it's also antiviral against mm. certain types of um, viruses with the envelope. Um, I guess it destroys the envelope and therefore destroys yeah. the virus. Uh, and so nervine tonic is, a, it, you know, broadens the indications for this herb, I think. Yeah. You you can use it for somebody who is stressed, who who uh, maybe feels fragile, or however you want to interpret the word or the, the indication in their fine yeah. tonic. It could also be that their, their some of their preparations were not great, you know, because mm. um, at that time they did have fluid extracts versus tinctures, and tinctures were typically uh, a one in five, where you you would um, where one kilogram of the dried herb would make five liters of the uh, the tincture. And they were very gentle kind of extracts, but they also wanted to have stronger ones. So they made one in ones, but in those days they didn't have much, uh, they didn't have good technology. So they would have to uh, evaporate the water and ethanol off uh, by, by boiling it. And that can obviously damage some of the active constituents. So you'll find here, when you look at some of the dosages, that the dosage for a one in one, in one um, fluid extract, they call them, 
uh, was higher than the tincture extract, mm. which doesn't make any sense because mm. ostensibly it ought to be two or three or four or five times stronger, but, mm. but maybe the boiling damaged it. So um, in those days, um, yeah, the, the tinctures might have been better than the fluid extract. So the whole um, uh, um, dosage thing is a difficult thing in herbal medicine, you know, mm. because it's so related to the, the quality of the extract. So that was just a bit about hypericum about that. And then I was just going to say yeah. before we move on about the boiling. So wait, prior, so these would have been people who've been practicing for 20 or 30 years, and they would have been told as well that it was a higher or therefore lower dose with uh, what is ultimately a decoction with the boiling. But yeah. the water quality would have been poorer as well up until the 70s or 80s when, you know, um, all water started to be filtered. So the the water standard originally would have been worse as well. So when we're looking Absolutely. back on this yeah. traditional, um, you know, information, we've got to think, well, what was the water standard like? What exactly. were they? Uh, they, they would have had distilled water, but mm. maybe not in herbal medicine manufacturing. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows what so, they were yeah. using? <laughs> so, but I mean, that's just another layer, isn't it, mm. into this traditional that's right. use? of herbs yeah. and, and how they were making them and what they were doing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's also another example in that same book where they mention uh, stone root colosonian being used for kidney stones, but that's not correct. It was called stone root because I'm not sure it's mentioned here or it's something that came out of herbal medicine that, that, that stone root was good for kidney stones, but that's actually just going, oh, stone root must be good for kidney stones. But in fact, it's stone root because the root is extraordinarily hard. It's as hard oh. as a stone. And that's the reason for that. <laughs> Totally different. Totally different. <laughs> so yeah, be careful with traditional information. Get it verified by science when we can. I love yeah. this idea, and this is what phytotherapy is about. Really, German. It's a German. It's a more commonly used in Germany than here. But phyto, phytotherapy means, to me, you know, respect for this for the tradition, and then Germans do have that respect normally, uh, and uh, and then apply the science and come up with a better product, basically mm. uh, more reliable, safer, and so on. Anyway, uh, the other story about hypericum is that I was also around, uh, and I forget when that was, mm, would, have been, would have been late 90s maybe, uh, where the hypericum drug interactions came out. Mm -hmm. And they came out of nowhere because we've used them for decades beforehand and we only had at that time uh, liquid extracts. And again, it came out of Germany and there was these rotten German companies who wanted to... Um, they make great extracts and they've, they really re, be, they are entirely responsible for all the problems with uh, herb drug interactions concerning hypericum. Wow. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It's because uh, they wanted this particular company wanted to differentiate themselves in the marketplace. And the way they do that is to come up with a bit like the carver cultura that we discussed last time, something novel, something different. They, they either come up with a, a new cultivar or a, a different species. Uh, or they, they come up with a different uh, extraction or potency just to make sure that they have something else in the marketplace. Mm. And so this company thought, uh, let's, and it's one of Germany's biggest companies, let's, uh, let's find a new constituent. And if we can match that to the antidepressant effects, we can actually come up with a new standardization for hypericum based on this particular extract uh, 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 constituent. And we'll have something completely different and proven to be our extract and uh, we'll, we'll kill the, the market you know, with our extract. Mm -hmm. So they identified a, a compound called hyperis, uh, hyperforin. So we've got hypericin, which is the antiviral that you also mentioned last time about mm -hmm. its antiviral effect in certain viruses. That's hypericin. 
Aparacin is also the one that is uh, a photosensitizer that can cause some of the, the side effects if you're having too much hyperacin gotten in the sun. But it's also used as a, as a treatment of psoriasis uh, as part of a therapy called a phytodynamic therapy. Anyway, uh, the compound that they found is called hyperforin. And they, they went uh, and, and did a couple of things. They harvested the, the uh, herb, the hypericum, St. John's wort, at a, a non-traditional time. I think it's, it's, it's harvested after flowering. They did it before flowering. And they also did some uh, steps in the manufacturing to artificially enrich the extract in hyperforin. And, uh, and then they also did some, ex, uh, some clinical studies to match that, that their extract was antidepressant, and it, it is uh, as a whole extract. But then they said it is due to hyperforin, which is not quite true because even the extracts with no hyperforin and no hyperacin still have antidepressive effect. Mm. Uh, but uh, it's, we now know that hyperforin is almost 100% responsible for the drug interactions. And if you, if you extract, uh, if you collect the hypericum uh, after flowering and you make a traditional extract like the liquid extracts we always used to use, there's no hyperforin in it to speak of. And that's why we never had any drug interactions hypericum before, St. John's Wort before. And if and it's still true today, if you choose a liquid extract, especially one made in Australia, there's very little hyperforin, no, and, and virtually no risk of interaction at all. Right. You so, can also, you can also, if you want to use a tablet, you have to ask the manufacturing manufacturer what is the level of hyperforin. And uh, and uh, sometimes they will know, sometimes they will want to tell you, sometimes maybe not but you need to ask them. Uh, mm. And if you want to be absolutely sure, uh, then you need to have that uh, documented because then you can give it to any of your patients and there's no risk of drug interaction. I know there's one product that's definitely so low in hyperforin that has not um, been shown in clinical studies with humans that it does not cause drug interactions and that's the one from Florida's. Yeah, so, and, the, and the liquids because apparently, you know, and after it's mm. eight weeks or something, isn't it? And it's all gone from the bottle anyway. And I don't if, know if there was you. any in, in the first place, yeah, yeah. a very, and, very little. I don't know about you, but there's no way we're getting a bottle eight weeks fresh out of the out of the <laughs> no. vat. No, no. <laughs> Even with yeah. shipping and transportation, you're not going to get it at eight weeks fresh out the vat. So the um, it is a really interesting one, and in how things can just go awry because mm. somebody thinks I'm going to make a buck. Yeah, and there's, I'm going to disregard traditional information. Yeah, it's, about um, when to harvest and which one to harvest, and so on. Yeah. That's right. It's like all the multi-level marketing stuff, you know, let's ingest essential oils, which is, of course, illegal in Australia. Yeah. Um, highly discouraged. I still would recommend, especially students and, 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 and new practitioners wondering about, you know, what to do. I still mm. would not use it with antidepressants. No. Just because you get into trouble. I, I don't think there's oh, much yeah. risk of a drug interaction, but yeah. it's just not a safe area to do. Yeah. So it's, it's one or the that... other. And patients should choose. Either they go pharmaceutical route or they go down and try something else. And also the other thing is that it can take four weeks before hypericum really kicks in as mm. an antidepressant effect a long time. So, so just be patient with it or, or have a transition period if they're coming off an antidepressant. It is possible to give hypericum in that transition period mm. as you, as you uh, as they reduce medication, but obviously that's done in conjunction with the doctor. Yes, totally. I mean, there's the, um, it interacts with the oral contraceptive pill as well. So we've got to be careful of the one that we give if they're taking the oral contraceptive correct, pill correct. to avoid Ag pregnancy. Again, although if you choose a liquid extract or, or the, the Florida's one, it's very, very unlikely. But just in case, you don't want to be responsible, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who so wants to be, yeah. Be safe. I, I don't need a baby on my doorstep, that's for sure. No. no. They <laughs> 
But yeah, it's really interesting the way people or companies think to themselves, oh, I'll just do this or I'll just do that. And it ends up messing up an entire group of people, an entire profession Correct. because of the let's make a quick buck. Yep. Yeah. So now what was our other one? We're going to talk about a Ruth row today. Oh, yeah. Well. Again, yeah. It's, it's again uh, uh, about tradition and interpretation and also how uh, I guess it's like Chinese whispers. So mm. uh, I've got two just very quick um, comments about that. First of all, three. The first one is the name. We should not call this WN ginseng. Yeah. Uh, it's just a marketing ploy, a bit like Indian ginseng for Ruthenia. You know, bad names, not traditional. Don't do it. So it should be Luthero. That's the that's the decided upon name for it, which is very close. Uh, all those different writing, the different spelling to the Russian throw I'm not sure exactly how did they say it but it's similar to that and so that is that is what I would recommend and that's what I use in my book just because we should we should try to resist the marketing ploys of, of thinking of a herb like Sabian ginseng you know and, and it's because it's not panics it's different you know it's not a, a, a cheaper version you know anyway so that's one thing the second thing um, is that uh, hypericum no, sorry um, uh, Luthero uh, was um, uh, we were taught that you couldn't use it in acute infections uh, because, and that goes across all adaptogens generally. Coming out of Chinese medicine, if you're in, in a full inflammatory state or uh, due to infection, for instance, that, that could somehow be aggravated by the, um, by the adaptogens. And I kind of, maybe it goes for panic ginseng, I'm not quite sure, but maybe that's one to avoid. But mm. um, Sabian ginseng, for instance, I call it the Sabian ginseng, just the habits start, they, they die. I know. Yep. Um, in, in Sweden, there's a company called the Swedish Herbal, Herbal Institute, and they, they've had a, an endographis compound uh, for a very, very long time, like decades. Mm. And nearly all the information about the use of endographis uh, in, in, for the common cold and acute infections come from their research. And they're mm. sort of world leaders in the research around endographis. And also adaptogens because they got this wonderful professor Panosian from Armenia who moved moved to Sweden and joined them, and uh, he's a uh, he's uh, one of the the key researcher has been for decades on uh, adaptogens generally. But the interesting thing about the product it's called Kangyang, K A N J A N G Kangyang, something like that. Anyway, <clears throat> you'll find it at the Swedish Herbal Institute, and it's you'll see that the research is actually done by them. A lot of the clinical research. But that product, the endographis compound, the Kenyang product, is actually a combination product and it contains endographis and Sabian ginseng as, as the two major, major herbs. So yeah. I deduct from that that you know acute infection cannot be a contraindication for Sabian ginseng or Luthero. Yeah. Um, so that's that's interesting. And there's no there's no um, research to suggest you can't use Luthero in acute infections. No. None whatsoever I can find. The second one, the second contraindication, which is also wrong, is uh, hypertension. You'll see that uh, in a lot of textbooks of old uh, that um, you couldn't use uh, Luthero for any hypertensive states. And that's not also incorrect. And it's a translation error way back from Russian. That's all. We did a whole paper, Matthias mostly, but he did a whole article on, on this. And um, yeah, just uh, misinformation. How Fake interesting. <laughs> Just a simple mistranslation has changed what people do and their behaviors towards a herb. Decades How later. incredible yeah. is that? Yeah. How yeah. incredible is that? I mean, like we were talking um, in our last episode about the book, you know, the British Pharmacopeia yeah. and how, you know, 
their decoctions versus the tinctures and how things change over time. And in this case, we've got a, re a researcher dedicated to looking at andrographis and he's also obviously using the other herbs as well and they've made a product that combines the two so yeah. you know we can say actually there was just a quite, probably quite a bit of misinformation right at the beginning along with changing you know saying oh it's siberian ginseng rather than saying it's a erythroid what it is it's not a ginseng and so along with all of that there's been this train of just a few changes misinformation just you know maybe the person who was translating was actually the PR person. <laughs> I think in that case, it was just uh, a mis misinterpretation yeah. or translation. Yeah, I don't think that was willful. The other example I gave, there's a couple of German companies that was willful. Um, so yeah, we got a bit of both. Yeah, well, there we go. So it's really interesting. So thank you. That's right. Oh, we've, got, we've got a couple now. They um, will have to think of others. We're going to have to find some other things to talk about, I reckon. Michael. I'm sure we come can. Come back again. I'm sure, we, I'm can. sure we can. <laughs> I'm sure we can come back and talk some more about herbs. So, um, well, for the Bite Size podcast, I might leave it there today. But thank you so much for coming back to speak to us, Michael. And I'm sure we can both think of other things to talk about. And I can have you back again once we get into maybe the summer months and, um, you know, things are flowering and you can. Sounds good. I can do with a bit of warmth now. Yeah. <laughs> Tasmania. Yeah. yeah it's We've got sunshine in South Australia, but it's cold. So I'm waiting for some sun, for some real summer to come as well, which will be really nice. So again, thank you so much for coming, Michael. And I'll look forward to seeing you next time on the Bite Size Podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast for the weekly episodes. If you'd like even more support and learning, then the Academy is for you. Here you'll find part two of the herbal discussions, more clinical learning and case studies to support your clients in practice. Bye for now.